We are in a series in the book of 1 Samuel, part of the history of the Israelites, and we're going to be in chapter 4, 5, and 6 this morning. And uh, it's always helpful to have your Bibles open. If you don't have one, there's a blue Bible there in front of you, and page 228 is uh, 1 Samuel. So as you find that, I want to remind you of the fall festival, and uh, we're setting up for it just following this event, this uh, worship service. So if you've got some time and you're able-bodied, we would love to have your help to put out some chairs and tables, so just keep that in mind as you leave this morning. Uh, I don't know if you remember the playground game, King of the Hill. You know this, you know this game? It's a game that doesn't require speed, so I enjoyed uh, the game a great deal when I was a kid. Size was an advantage, so I always wanted to play King of the Hill. And, you know, somebody stands at a small hill or maybe a spot or some idea, and, you know, the idea is you're the king of the hill, and then everybody else who's playing is trying to pull you down, pull you off, and then replace you with themselves, and then they were supposed to say, I'm king of the hill. And the game goes on. Well, the game actually has a lot of different variations. The show Survivor. You know the show? It's a variation of King of the Hill. There's two different teams, and they have to do some kind of obstacle, and somebody loses, and guess what happens to one of the losers? Yep, they're voted off the island, right? And as the series progresses, you know, it comes down to somebody's going to win, and somebody's going to win the jackpot, and you know what they're going to be called? The sole survivor. That's basically the king of the hill. They're, they're the king of the island, and they, they're the winner. It's interesting, as I just thought about this uh, this week, the uh, season of 2018 Survivor, the theme is called David and Goliath. So I thought I would tune in to get some you know help on my sermon uh, as we move forward here, get some help from Survivor. Pro- probably won't. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, but you might say that in chapters 4, 5, and 6, God is playing a kind of a version of king of the hill. Uh, over the first three chapters, God, or over these three chapters, God's trying to help everybody understand he's the king. And the biggest difference between what's happening here and what happens on a playground is on a playground, it's a fight. It's a wrestling match. Who's going to really be the king? Here, it's not a fight. It's a fact. God is the king of the hill. There are no other competitors or no other pretenders. There are a lot of people who would like to try to be, and we'll see this in the text, but really it's just a fact that God is the king of the hill, and he's trying to help us in these three chapters understand that. He's not trying to establish it because it's true. He's trying to help establish it in our hearts so that we really know that he is the king. And the way he does that is he makes these three chapters all about the ark. You see it probably in your Bible if your Bible has headings to each of your chapter. In my Bible, chapter 4, the Philistines capture the ark. In chapter 5, the Philistines and the ark. And in chapter 6, the ark returns to Israel. So whatever you think about these three chapters is definitely all about the ark. 
It's all about who God is, and it's all about him establishing himself as the king. And if you are reading through this sort of all in one sitting, what, one of the things you're supposed to notice is that in the first three chapters, chapter 1, 2, and 3, the name Samuel is used 40 times. 40 times. So it's a book about Samuel, no question about that. In chapter 4, 5, and 6, the name Samuel is used zero times. And you're supposed to notice that. You're supposed to say, okay, something happened here. We went from all about Samuel, and now the ark of God is used 37 times in these three chapters. And maybe another way to think about this as opposed to the king of the hill is God's clearing the stage. He's trying to say, okay, when you look at the stage, when you see the main actor on the stage, I want you to see it being Yahweh, God, the God of Israel. And he comes in to clear the stage of all contenders to the spotlight, all pretenders who are pretending to be followers of God and really aren't. And he's trying to say, I'm establishing myself as king of the hill. So I want to do something that's really ambitious this morning, and that is to try to tackle all three chapters in one sermon, which is, means we have to skip over some things. But I think there's a main flow here and if we chop it up into more, more sermons, we might miss that main flow. And I, that's what I want us to see, that there's a flow of God trying to establish himself or trying to help us understand he's the king. And it comes really in three different scenes. There's a scene in chapter 4, a scene in chapter 5, and a scene in chapter 6. And in every scene, he's ushering people off the stage and saying, hey, I'm the king. And so we'll look at that, and as we go through... I also want to point out two other things. You're going to hear echoes of the Exodus story. Echoes of the Exodus story. And then we'll close by seeing shadows of the gospel. So by standing here, we're going to be able to look behind and see something. And we're also going to be able to look forward and see the gospel. So you have to lean forward. This is a, we're going to cover a lot of ground here. And you have to be engaged. So first of all, God clears the stage. Chapter 4, this is what happens in chapter 4. You see, we'll just sort of read through some of these verses. Now, Israel went out to a battle. They're battling against the Philistines. These are the arch enemies of Israel. They're encamped in one city called Ebenezer, and the Philistines are over at this other place called Aphek, and they're going to have this battle. And when they have their very first battle, 4,000 men, 4,000 Israelites are killed by the Philistines. And so when they, the ones that are left, they, when they come back to the camp of the elders, verse 3, they're asking this question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's bring out the ark of God. Let's, let's bring out the, the ark. It's in Shiloh, and let's, let's bring it, and it'll come here, and, and it has the power to save us. So the people went to Shiloh, and they brought out the ark, and guess who's carrying the ark, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, if you're reading through, you go, oh, this isn't going to be good. It's not going to be good for Hophni and Phinehas. They are the worthless, wicked sons of Eli, the priest. And here they are. They're right next to the ark. They're carrying it out. And they come out, and there's a great shout in the camp saying, okay, the, 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 the God of Israel is with us. And the Philistines, verse 6, they hear this, and they say, what does this great shouting mean? And they get afraid. 
because they understand that this God who uh, struck down the Egyptians are, is now with Israel. And somebody in that camp, verse 9, says, Take courage, Philistines, be men, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. See, we're trying to put somebody in slavery, and if you, if you lose to them, they're going to enslave you. But if we win, we're going to enslave them. So be men and fight. So the Philistines fight Israel, verse 10, and they defeated Israel. In fact, 30,000 foot soldiers died. Then verse 11, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they both died on the same day. A fulfillment of an earlier verse. Well, word gets back to Eli, the priest, the the dad of Hophni and Phinehas. And in verse 18, as soon as he, that the, the carrier says, mentioned the ark of God has been captured, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, which is interesting. And he died, and then there's just a little comma, and it says, for the man was old and heavy. So it's just an interesting little comment there that we'll pick up in a minute. So the Israelites are out on this battle. They're, they're going to fight the, the arch enemy. And God is trying to, trying to get rid of false shepherds. He's trying to clear the stage of false shepherds. That's Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And these false shepherds were not people who served God, but used God to serve them. They put on the right robes and everything, but they use God for money. They use God for for sexual favors. And now they're going to use God like he's a magic wand. Do you see what they did? We've lost. We're in trouble. So let's pull out the magic wand. Let's pull out the ark. I mean, the ark marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. So maybe we pull out the ark and it's kind of like a magic wand. It's like magic. You just pull it out and you're automatically going to win. It doesn't matter that your own character you're going to win. And so they think they're going to win. So a great shout goes up thinking they're going to win. And then they're devastated in this defeat. And the Bible says this in Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And so Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are reaping what they've sowed. God sees. It seems like they're going to be successful for a few chapters, but God sees their wickedness, and he cuts all three of them down, essentially, in the same battle. And one of the things that seems to tip the scale here is using God like he's a magic wand for your own purposes. Especially preachers and pastors using God like he's some magic wand. Like, you pull it out, you have control, and if you do or say certain things, then things happen like magic. And this has a little feeling of the prosperity preachers that you hear on television. If you say things out loud, if you claim it in the name of Jesus out loud, then it's going to happen. And of course, if you send in money, it can happen even a little bit faster. And so these, these are false shepherds. They're using God in a way that's not holy. They're using God in a way that's not meant to be. 
And so God cuts down Hophni and Phinehas. And it's funny to me that they brought out the ark to fight against the enemies. And get, guess what they discovered? They're the enemies. They're the actual enemies. The ark actually does its job in some sense, cutting down the real enemies. But it's the enemies on the inside. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the biggest problem Israel had were the enemies within? And I used that movie, remember that? The girl's at home and she's babysitting and somebody's trying to get in the house. I see you. Right? And the police call and say, hey, we traced the call and the call's coming from inside the house. So God's starting inside the house. He's going to clean the house out from the inside out and he's going to get rid of Hophni and Phinehas. And then just notice he's getting rid of Eli too. Word comes back to Eli, and one of the things that you, you don't see it in the English, but it's helpful to know in the Hebrew, that the word heavy and the word glory is the same Hebrew word. The word You could just do a sermon through these three chapters and talk about heavy and glory. Eli was heavy. Doesn't mean he was just a big man. He was a self-glorified man. He had stuffed himself. So he had gotten big, not God, underneath his watch. While he was preaching, he got big and God got smaller. So he was a heavy man. He was full of self-glorification and God hates that kind of leadership and he cuts off his head. Second stage here. God clears the stage of all false gods. The ark is captured, chapter 5. And the Philistines take it back to their hometown, and they put it into this temple called the Temple of Dagon. When, chapter 5, verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. Dagon is a god that's an idol, half man, half fish. And they set it up beside Dagon as a way to say, hey, this God is lower than our God, and he's going to serve. Yahweh's going to serve Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod, this is the main city where the temple is, they rose early the next day in what had to be an embarrassing moment. Behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And since Dagon couldn't put himself back up, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, but this time his head had been cut off. His hands had been cut off. He's totally impotent now. Only the trunk was left. Verse 6, and the hand of the Lord was heavy, heavy. See, we could, we could follow that thread. Heavy against the people. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is there and it's heavy against the people who are trying to take center stage. And they were terrified and they were afflicted with tumors, both in Ashdod and the surrounding territory. And so these plagues come upon the people in Ashdod and they say, hey, we can't stand the ark of the Lord, but we don't want to give it back to Israel. Let's give it to another town. So they give it to the next town and it kind of feels like hot potato. Right? They, like, we can't hold it. It's too hot for us. You hold it. And they pass it off to the next city. And guess what? Plagues come out. Tumors come out. 
They get terrified. They pass it on to the, final, the third city. And finally, the third city says, we don't want it. Nobody should want it. Let's give it back. Let's send it back. So that's the story. And one of the things that we should be hearing here is that not only God, it is God moving all contenders off the stage, he's cutting the head off of evil. Now, where, where do we hear that? Remember, I go over here sometimes and I play a chord. Just hear this, like the Bible is one big, great piece of music, and you hear these chords that come across over and over again. When does God, where does God first say, he's going to crush the head of evil? Genesis chapter 3. And so you're leaning forward as a Bible reader saying, where is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? And you see just in this book alone, first of all, the wicked priest Eli, his head essentially gets cut off. Dagon, his head gets cut off. David goes to Goliath and after he knocks him down with the, with the stone, what does he do? He pulls out Goliath's sword and chops his head off. And then Saul, in the very last chapter of the Bible, who should have been following after God, but decided he'd rather follow after himself, the Philistines find him, and guess what they do to Saul? They cut off his head. So this theme is happening over and over and over again. God is going to destroy evil. And what you think is going to happen in the New Testament, when you get there, he's going to do it by a sword. Who thought you should fight by a sword? Remember this? Peter. This is the way it's been going. I'm pulling out my sword and we're going to put evil to death. But in a very surprising turn, what kind of sword does God use in the New Testament? He uses a cross. He puts to death evil that's in my heart by taking it away from me and crushing it on the cross, and defeating it by coming out of the tomb. And so this, this theme is running through the Bible, and you see it here very easily, and we'll come across it again and again in 1 Samuel. Now, the, 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 the other thing you're supposed to, a couple other things you're supposed to notice here is that the, the hand of the Lord was heavy. It's mentioned in verse 6, verse 9, verse 11. And you're supposed to think, yeah, poor Dagon, he doesn't have any hands. They got cut off. But, but the hand of the Lord is heavy. He doesn't have to worry about that. And so when they finally say, let's go, let's send this ark out of the country, they cook up sort of a strange scheme. And you can read about it. It's the first few verses of chapter 6. They decide, hey, we got to send the ark back. And what we're going to do is we're going to send it back, but we got to send some kind of offering. I mean, we've done wrong, so we got to give something up. And we're going to make, we're going to send back gold. Sounds reasonable, but they make gold tumors. I, I don't know what this looks like. But five gold tumors, probably five because there's five main Philistine cities. So I don't know, if it, I don't know, it looks like a potato. I don't know what a tumor looks like. Hope I don't find out. But they have these five golden tumors that are in a box, and then they have five golden mice or rats because rats are plaguing them as well. And they send these gold figurines back, and they send them back with two milk cows. 
And they say, well, if these milk cows turn back for home, turn back for Philistine, then it was just a random thing that happened to us. But if these two milk cows who should, be tur- who should turn back from home, because there's no rider, if they actually go back into the promised land, if go back into Israel, we know God was really, his hand was against us. And so they send the ark off, no driver, hitched to two cows, and the two cows go back to Israel. It's a very funny and strange story, but what you're supposed to notice is that God is king of the hill. He's the king. It's not a fight with Dagon. It's a fact. And I want to make a couple of observations here. First, there's going to be times in every culture when it looks like God has been defeated. That's what it looks like for the Israelites. I mean, imagine being an Israelite. We lost the ark. God got captured on our watch. And the Philistines look like they're winning, and it looks like we've been defeated. And this is going to happen in, for the Israelites over and over. And this same kind of challenge, it's going to happen with you over and over. There are going to be times in your life, there's going to be times in our culture that it looks like God has been defeated. Now, a few of you will be old enough to remember this slide from Time Magazine. 1966 came out right around Easter. So imagine you're living in this time. This is a super popular magazine. It's on every rack and you just walk by it and you go, is God dead? And God is looking for someone who can stand in that moment and say, no, God is not dead. Forty years later, a book is written. Well, maybe God's not dead. Maybe he's just a delusion. If you believe in God in 20, 2006 when this book is written, and I would say today, you're delusional. It's not that God's dead, it's that you're delusional. And in those moments, God is looking for someone to stand in like he's going to use Samuel, like he's going to use David, and say, I want somebody to be able to stand and tell people that I'm not dead and people aren't delusional. But the main thing I want you to see here, although God is wanting to partner with people, in chapter 5, what we're supposed to walk away with thinking is that we're not necessary. God would like to partner with us. That's the way he designed the world. That's why he built Adam and Eve as sort of business partners in this adventure called creation. But we're not necessary. Why? God can get his hand to do whatever he wants to do. He can convict people of sin. He doesn't necessarily need you. And in a weird way, if God gets in a pinch because of us, he can get himself home all by himself. Just imagine two cows and God sitting on his throne in an ark. And the Philistines are going, how, is this, how are these cows getting home? Well, God's talking to them. Hey, let's go on home. He doesn't need us. He might want us to jump in. He might want us to be a partner, but it's not necessary. And this is so helpful for us because we can, I think in a nice way, say things like, well, God has no hands or feet but ours. You ever heard this? Some of you are going, I think I'd have that on my refrigerator. 
that's not true. God has hands. They're pretty heavy, apparently. And he can do whatever he wants. Now, I understand God wants to use our hands as an extension. I'm not trying to say that's terrible. I'm just saying it's really not true. God can move without you and me. And we need to see that. And this may be especially important for me or anybody in Christian leadership who might think of themselves or might busy themselves like they're indispensable. It needs to be said clearly from this pulpit, I'm dispensable. Easily dispensable. And on this stage, we want to make sure God is king of the hill. And all of the spotlight is on him. And you leave every Sunday saying, isn't God great? Not Paul or Christ Community Church or anything. It's, it's all about God. We're trying to make him great. Well, he is great. We're trying to help us see that he is great. Now, before we go to chapter 6 and we look at this third way God clears the stage, I want to just point out obvious things that are echoes of Exodus here. The Philistines, we know from Genesis chapter 10, they're near relatives to the Egyptians, which is why in the, these three chapters they say they know about the story of the Egyptians. The Philistines are trying to enslave the Israelites just like the Egyptians did. God defeats the Philistines, how? By plagues, just like he did in Exodus. The Philistines are warned not to harden their heart like the Egyptians and Pharaoh. The Philistines cry out for relief, load up the ark with gold, and send it on its way. This is exactly what the Egyptians did for the Israelites. And the ark comes to rest in a field called Joshua. Who led the people back into the promised land? Joshua. So when you hear, when you hear these connections, the, what, what you're supposed to say is, I hear Exodus. I hear these chords being replayed. And what must be happening is God is on the move. God is going to do something because I hear these very similar themes coming up again, these very similar chords, and God must be ready to save his people from their sin. He's going to intervene. He's going to do something that no other person can do. And when you hear these choruses over and over and over in the New Testament, they're supposed to be plain in your mind. So when Jesus in Luke chapter 9 comes to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember this? Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's transfigured before God, and there's two people there. Who's with him? Elijah and Moses. So you're already, you're already here in the tune, right? I'm hearing the same thing. Uh-oh, it might be Exodus. And Jesus says, now is the time for my exodus. Now, he uses the English word, unfortunately, gets transferred uh, into uh, departure. And it's like, no, come on, it's not departure, it's exodus. Because when you hear that, you're supposed to say, oh, no, I know this song. This is the great song where God comes in and he rescues his people from certain enslavement. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And you're supposed to see all this. And what I would want you to see is how beautiful it is. 
how encouraging it is, how God works all the way through time. And so we've been hearing this tune, and when we see Jesus, we go, yes, this is it. This is right. This is how God works. I can trust in him. I would want it to shore up your confidence and, and help you read the Bible as one long story that's beautiful. So we hear the echoes of Exodus. Third, God clears the stage not just of the false religious leaders, not of the contenders like Dagon and the Philistines, but also what I'm going to call phony followers. Chapter 6, verse 12. The cows come back, and they went straight into the direction of a town called Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is a town that's given to the Levites, who are priests. They come along the highway, they turn neither to the right or the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh, and they said, and, and the people in Beth Shemesh were reaping the harvest. They're out in the field. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark, and they rejoiced. I can't believe it. I mean, seven months, the ark's been gone. Here it's come back. The cart came into the field of Joshua and stopped there. And there's a great stone there. And so they split up the wood of the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering. And the Levites took the ark of the Lord and the box. This is where these tumors, gold tumors are. And they set them on this rock. Verse 19. And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. In fact, he struck 70 of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall, be, shall he go up away from us? He's too holy. Let's send him away, just like the Philistines said. So this third clearing are all phony followers. These Levites, they're the priests. They actually have a book named after them. You know what it's called? Leviticus. And the whole book is about how to handle the ark. This is the way you're supposed to do it. You don't get to handle God any way you want. God gets to decide how he gets handled. But they just decide, well, well we kinda, we're just kind of improvised. We're going to do whatever we want here. And we'll put the ark up on this thing. And we'll look at it in a way we shouldn't. We'll touch it in a way we shouldn't. We're going to make sacrifices in a way we shouldn't. We're going to put the tumors up there with him. And they don't handle the ark in a holy way, not very much unlike Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and Dagon. And what they find out is that God's holiness is serious business. But they aren't serious about God. They would prefer to handle God rather than God handle them. And you can tell their lack of seriousness because verse 20, they complain Who's able to stand before God? Let's send them away. And effectively what they're doing, they make a mistake and they blame God for how he responds. I wonder if that sounds familiar to anyone here. I know what I did was wrong. I don't like the consequences, but it's God's fault. 
When you do something wrong and you're looking for someone else to blame, especially God, you're not serious about God. You're not serious about your own sinfulness. You're not serious about God's holiness. And so the blame game goes on. When is the first time you heard this chord? Genesis 3. That's the answer for most of my questions. If you ever, if I say, when's the first time? Just go Genesis 3, 50% of the time, you're going to be right. It starts back in, I'm blaming God for me not obeying his word. The whole point here is God is king of the hill. It's not a fight, it's a fact. And for us, the first step in a right relationship with God is just acknowledging that he's the king and you're not. That's the very first step. Now, I want to close here by just seeing shadows of the gospel, which to me is really the most exciting part. We're standing past the New Testament. So when we look back into the Old Testament, you're supposed to be looking back through a New Testament lens. You see things that the people in Samuel couldn't possibly see. So let me just draw out all these parallels about the gospel, and you just be amazed at them. First of all, the ark leaves the tabernacle like God is leaving his throne to fight an enemy. God leaves his right place to go fight an enemy. Secondly, the expectation that when God gets there, he's going to, he's going to win the battle. I mean, if God's left his throne and he's come to get personally involved in a fight, he's going to win the fight. But surprisingly, it appears as if he's defeated. His defeat or his apparent defeat isn't because of his lack of power. His apparent defeat is because of the sin of his people. But instead of sending people into exile, he goes into exile. He alone goes into the dark tomb and temple of Dagon. And what does he do when he's in the tomb? He defeats evil. And he defeats evil all by himself. And then he comes home riding on this strange chariot. And he's inviting anyone in chapter 7 who would repent and place all of their trust in him to say, would you hop on and we'll all go home together. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds a lot like the gospel. And what, that's, that, what's that, what that is supposed to do is fuel your heart with joy, with passion, with truth, to say, that's right. I get out in this world, and it looks like God's dead. I get out in this world, and I feel like I'm, I'm deluded. But I come back here, and I hear this, and I go, no, that's right. That's the truth. I've got to get my mind wrapped around that reality. Remember when in Luke 24, these two sort of disappointed disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus? Remember this story? Nod your head. We're getting to the end to say, yeah, I remember the story, okay? And Jesus comes up beside him, and they don't know who he is. Remember this? And what does he do to conquer their unbelief? He tells them all of the stories of the Old Testament that had been pointing to him. And I've got to wonder if he didn't say, hey, you remember in Samuel? 
Let me unpack Samuel for you. And you remember when they found out it was Jesus, remember what they said? Our hearts were burning within us. We knew it was right. And that's what I, if I could somehow transfer that to you this morning to say, that's right. That's the truth. I get deluded by standing in front of a tele or sitting in front of a screen all day. I get deluded by my neighbor or my, the lost culture. I get deluded by that. I'm in a delusion and I need somebody to come in and say, this is the truth. And I'm trying to represent the Lord to say, this is the truth. And Jesus is the king. It's not a fight. It's a fact. And the question for you and for me is, have we really made him king? Or, for most of us, are we like the Levites? We basically handle God any way we want. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much power in your word. So much uh, trans transforming power. That once we see it, our eyes are open like scales fall off and we say, yes, that's, that, that's my heart. I'm, I'm like the Levites. And we need your help. We, we live in a culture that completely warps our sense of identity. And we have reached inside ourselves to find ourselves, and we've gotten lost. And we need to open our hands to the God who is the King. Pray that you would do that in only the way you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.